Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're going to continue our discussion on chapter 5, which is again soter- or sorry, of chapter 6, which is soteriology and LDS thought. This has been a three-part series just cuz it's kind of an extensive chapter. Um and this one we're going to continue on with our discussion. Last time we talked a bit about uh, atonement, justice, mercy, and infinite atonement. And now we're going to kind of switch gears and talk about uh unique views of grace with an LDS thought and then more on the actual atonement to what happens in that process, as well as, yeah, just a couple other things. All right, so first off, the or first section is prevenient grace in LDS scripture. All right, so as we talked about before, prevenient, just at least in this context, means before. So prevenient grace is grace that was offered before we pretty much did anything. Uh, and so, as usual, I'll start with some quotes here. You say, Prevenient grace is that grace which is given prior to any act of human will. The Book of Mormon teaches a robust sense of prevenient grace. And you give an example of that in Second Nephi chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. It says, And the Messiah cometh in the fullness of times, that he may redeem the children of men from the fall. And because that they are redeemed from the fall, they have become free forever, knowing good and evil to act for themselves and not to be acted upon. Wherefore, men are free according to the flesh, and all things are given unto them which are expedient unto man. And they are free to choose eternal life through the great mediator of all men, or to choose captivity according to the captivity and power of the devil, for he seeketh that all men might be miserable like unto himself. So, you mention that this passage itself contains four important points regarding the gift aspect of the atonement. First off, back to prevenient grace. Is there anything else you want to do to introduce prevenient grace before we move on? Or is... Yeah, let me put it into the cultural context in which the term is being used with the Book of Mormon. For Calvinists, remember, we suffer from an inherently evil nature. And we cannot overcome this evil nature, which means we are not free to choose God, which means that God has to choose us. So in Calvinism, when grace is given, it's because God has chosen to give us grace. It's called irresistible grace, which means that not even the evil nature can resist it. So it's irresistible grace. Armenians rejected that because it meant that God predestined whom he wanted to salvation and predestined whom he wanted to damnation, and they didn't like that. And so they replaced this with the notion of prevenient grace, and that is that God made all persons free to choose to accept grace or to reject grace. So that was prevenient grace. And the grace essentially was something that was given by God to make us free to choose. It doesn't make the choice for us, as it does in Calvinist thought, where the grace is irresistible and God makes the choice himself. And so Calvinism gave grace which made persons free to choose to accept grace. I'd like to note the difference in terminology. It is very significant that the term justification by grace really does not appear in the Book of Mormon, and it rarely appears in the Doctrine and Covenants. The only place that it really appears is in DNC 20, 
which is significant because it's really the earliest uh, statement of kind of articles of faith, if you will, for the church. And there it talks about justification by grace and talks about falling from grace. Because in the Calvinist notion, you have also the notion of once saved, always saved. That is, you have eternal duration in grace. The bottom line is that, you know, it appears there, but it really kind of disappears, if you will, from Mormon parlance after that. The Book of Mormon doesn't use that terminology. The closest cognitive concept in the Book of Mormon to justification by grace is actually redemption. And it's clear that redemption is fully by grace. Throughout the Book of Mormon, whenever a person is redeemed, it's because that person has been redeemed by God. And so what this means is that we are redeemed, and as a result of the redemption, we're made free to choose for ourselves. However, the choice in the Book of Mormon is not to choose to accept grace or reject grace. The choice in the Book of Mormon is to choose to either choose God as our Lord and the one that will give us life, or we would choose the devil. And so that's the choice, and that's the, the matrix within which the, the terminology is functioning. All right, great. Yeah, so let's dive into these four points that you mentioned here. So first, the, which we kind of just talked about, but the atonement is a gift which redeems or restores human agency, which entails the self-determination to choose either life or death, like you said. And in the absence of an atonement, we are captive to the devil and the desires of our flesh. Thus, free will is a gift. We are freed from bondage to our self-absorbed alienation and passions of the flesh when we are able to choose to share life with God. Let me point out that there's a notion of original sin in Mormon thought, but it isn't something that actually has any effect on us. The reason that it doesn't have effect on us is that we are made free from the foundation of the world, and all children are delivered automatically from the effects of the fall. So this state in which we would be totally lost is something that would exist, but for God's grace. So there's this sense of original sin that we would suffer from, but we've been delivered from original sin by the atonement as a sheer gift. So if you think of a world where Christ failed in his mission or where there was no Christ, it would be a world of complete captivity, and we would be in captivity to sin. We would be in captivity to the devil is the way the Book of Mormon sees it. All right. And just to clarify, where would that come from? Why, why would there be this captivity? Just because of the inability for us to repent, basically, or what, what's making us captive? What the Book of Mormon makes clear is that it, it's a matter of simple human nature. There's this natural man, is the terminology, which is an enemy to God. And what is natural in us, and what is natural in us, are bodies. We would be lost to the demands of our bodies and those things that seek to, to make us captive if the atonement hadn't freed us from the liabilities that come with these things that would make us captive. More importantly, it's where we give our allegiance. If we give our allegiance to the devil, then we're choosing death. If we give our allegiance to the devil, then we become sons and daughters of the devil. If we give our allegiance to God, then we choose life, and we become his sons and daughters. This is a clear dichotomy in the Book of Mormon. It's a dichotomy that arises first in the writings of Lehi, as they're reflected in the writings of Nephi, and then is reflected again in King Benjamin's speech. It's reflected again in Alma the Senior's teachings and in Alma the Junior's teachings. It disappears for a while with, with just a bit of recognition by Mormon when he writes. So it's kind of an author-specific type of a recognition in the Book of Mormon. 
But this is a, a very important recognition that what we would suffer from what I have termed hypothetical original sin. That is, it's a state we would have, but for the fact that the world includes Christ and the atonement. Okay. Uh, and then second, you say, the knowledge of good and evil is both necessary to the exercise of such freedom and also a gift. Now, no, the, the knowledge of good and evil in the Book of Mormon is called the light of Christ. And in the Doctrine and Covenants, this concept gets expanded on greatly because the knowledge of good and evil is a light that is given to us to vivify us, give us life, and to enlighten our minds. So this light of Christ becomes a kind of, in a sense, what we would call in modern parlance, a conscience, the detection of good and evil and the ability to distinguish between the two. This too is a gift, and it's clearly in the Book of Mormon a gift that results from the atonement of Christ that's simply given to us, and the knowledge to distinguish between good and evil is essential in Lehi's theology as part of his opposition in all things recognition. All right, and is that something that we already had, or did Christ have to act first for that to occur, such as before this life, for example? Having a body is a difficult thing to do because... There's this real risk. Our senses and the knowledge that comes to us through our senses is so controlling, vivid, and overwhelming that the spiritual sense of the knowledge of good and evil seems to be something that we would be overwhelmed with in, in just by having a body that it, you know has these powerful senses that overcome the spiritual senses. And so this moral sense that we have, the knowledge of good and evil, is a gift that is given to us that really is not controlled by our bodily needs or the bodily senses. But keep in mind that the Book of Mormon views the body both as a gift and as a challenge to be mastered over time. And so would we have it but for the atonement? The answer is we were, as intelligences, we participated in the light. But we have come here to gain greater light and to grow in the light. And so we begin with a certain level of light, and the goal in human life is to increase in that light. And so this is a dynamic concept. In some ways, it is like embodying God's initial aim into ever greater, greater extent in process thought. It is like growing in the glory of God in orthodox thought. But it's a very important concept that as a result of the atonement, we have this ability to distinguish between good and evil. And it is because of the light of Christ. Now, we've talked previously about the light of Christ. This light enters into us. This is viewed not as merely metaphorical. There's an actual energy, a vivifying force that speaks to our spirits and that gives energy and life to our spirits and to our bodies, in which we then are beginning the process of being made over in Christ's image. We've talked about this previously at some length. And it is part of that process. As we grow in the light, we become more and more attuned to the distinction between good and evil and more sensitive so that we can overcome any ignorance that we have with respect to what may be good or what may be. All right. And yeah, it looks like we'll go into that in the next section a bit more. So let's move on here. The third one is freedom consists of being able to act for ourselves rather than being acted upon. And that, again, refers back to that scripture. The scripture said there are things that act and things that are acted upon. And so you're saying what we should aim to do is not be acted upon, but be able to be actors. Can you explain that concept a little bit? 
Yeah, the notion is that but for the atonement, we would not be able to act for ourselves. We would merely be at the mercy of all our environment and our history so that we are acted upon. But we can't choose to avoid merely reacting to the stimuli and the causes that are in our environment. We would be completely controlled by those. As a result of the atonement, however, we've been made free to, to not merely react. We can choose to be an act in and of itself. This is a power that Orthodox Christianity reserves only for God, the ability to be a first cause, if you will. And this is a very important concept because, in a sense, I read this to be the Book of Mormon rejecting causal determinism and adopting what I would call um, Asian causal libertarianism so that we act for ourselves and we're not merely acted upon, which means we're, we're kind of our own cause is the initiation of our actions. And that's very important in other contexts. In the first volume, it was very important when we were discussing determinism and indeterminism and the view of libertarian freedom that I propounded as co-creative cause. And so in this context, however, in the context of soteriology that we're discussing, for instance, in the Book of Mormon, in the context of Doctrine and Covenants as view of grace as growing in the light, when we grow in the light, we become more able to be free from our past. We are made free by not merely being acted upon. If we couldn't repent, we would merely be acting out our history and the things that have caused us to be the way we are in the past over and over and over again without any ability to free ourselves. As a result of the atonement, however, we're made free to choose for ourselves and to be a cause to choose for ourselves to cause as we wish and, and to act for ourselves rather than simply be the result of, you know, people pushing our buttons, for instance, to put it in a common parlance. So this is a very important concept in psychological context. This is very important. I truly believe, I think this is one of the most powerful aspects of Mormonism, I truly believe in the power of the human mind to believe and to achieve what it believes, but more importantly, that we are free to choose. We're not merely slaves to our past. We can actually overcome our past and be healed through the atonement and through our conscious choice to not merely be the result of people pushing our buttons or living out our past issues or you know doing the same things over and over again because we're stuck in addictions or whatever. The fact is that when we talk about the gospel, for the earliest Christians, the notion that we were free to choose in this sense was synonymous with the gospel. It's what the gospel was all about, was to have this freedom. In the Book of Mormon, in its theology, we're made free in this sense because of the atonement as a mere gift. All right, good, yeah. Well, it's just an aside, I don't know. I listened to some other podcast recently, I don't remember exactly where, but they are just kind of talking about this concept of, like, hey, maybe there's a set of circumstances where or like there you know there's some sort of outside forces where if we were put in a certain situation we would all fall victim to sin in a, in if the certain set of circumstances were right or you know just just so and so it's just to avoid those circumstances but then they kind of came back around like well I don't think actually that's what the LDS scriptures teach and like you say it's it's that even in that situation sure it, it'd be a lot tougher because all of those outside forces or triggers are triggering your biology and all that but I think, you know, like you said, the crux of what we teach is that no matter what, you are still able to make a choice. The choice is always there. There's not a point where, I mean, you know, other than if action's already in effect, like if, I don't know, like if you, you've chosen to swing an axe at someone's head and it's to the point of no return, like you can't then at that point choose not to go forward with that just because of the forces of physics. But as far as like the choice of 
committing the crime, no matter what the circumstances are, you're saying that we do have the freedom to avoid that. Well, in fact, the circumstances in which we all sin have actually been created in this world. The fact is we all do sin, and the circumstances exist to be a, a mortal human in this world that at some point, if we live to an age to be accountable for what we do, we're going to recognize that we've all sinned. It's not inevitable that we will sin. It's simply the case that the way life is set up, we in fact do all sin. However, this goes along with what you're saying. Remember the Clarence Darrow defense. What he did was fully describe the circumstances in which his clients grew up and the kinds of challenges that they faced and how difficult life was for them. And they shouldn't be expected to overcome being criminals or to not be criminals given their history. It was his, you know, the Clarence, we call it the Clarence Darrow defense. But the fact is, in every family you find, you know, not in every family, but I have many friends who have come out of very, very difficult circumstances. All their brothers and sisters are, are slaves to those circumstances, but they are not. They've overcome. They're miracles. And so overcoming our past is a challenge. We all have issues that arise from our past, from when we're growing up in this world as children and we don't have the cognitive capacity to really understand the context in which statements are made to us or decisions are made. And we all conclude at some point, you know, that we're going to reject people and not love. We all do. It's just a part of being human. But we're able really to consciously choose. And I really believe in the power to choose and overcome. It may be difficult. It's a challenge. But, you know, if it were easy, it wouldn't be a challenge. That's a part of what we're here to do is to learn how to overcome in precisely this sense. So it often is the case that we sin. And, and when we Every single person, I think, when we, if we reflect on our past, when we get to the point where we're able to even cognitively reflect on our past, we realize that we've already violated our own moral standards. You know, we've treated people rottenly, and, and we have engaged in conduct we're certainly not proud of, and some conduct we're downright ashamed of. Every single one of us has that realization, and it's just built into to humanity. So the circumstances in which we all sin exist on this earth. And, you know, there is a sense in which there is sin built into the world because it's a challenge for us. And it's part of what we're here to do is to learn to overcome that by not being stuck in our past. This is a part of what it means to be made free by the atonement as well. Because we can repent and we can repent because of the atonement, we are able to overcome our past and not be stuck in it. And that's an essential part of what the atonement does. And we do that through repentance. Repentance means, yeah, I've been stuck in this cycle really bad behavior that I don't want to repeat anymore. And so I'm changing my life, and it's through the power of the atonement that I'm able to make that choice and change my life. This too is a grace and a gift. The last point here is pretty much what we've already talked about, but I'll just read it so we can have it in there. You say, finally, redeeming grace is necessary prior to any act of human will precisely because there is no free will in the absence of such grace, which we've already pretty much talked about. So now I kind of want to switch years, and I guess we kind of went into this fairly well in the last podcast, so we don't have to go all the way into it, but there is a misconception among Latter-day Saints and other people's perception of Latter-day Saints of a certain scripture in Nephi where he mentions that we are saved after all we can do. And we talked about this a lot, about grace, of salvation itself being a gift, and after all we can do doesn't necessarily mean that grace doesn't kick in until all we can do, because no one's ever done all they can do. But before we go on to this next concept you have of a second stage of grace, uh, what would you like to clarify about this misconception? 
what I take the scripture to actually mean in terms of the 19th century phraseology that it's using, when it says, after all we can do, what it really means is that it's because of grace that we can do what we do freely. And because we can do what we do freely, we're free to repent and move forward. So we have this grace of prevenient grace that's given to us before we make any choices to make us free to choose for ourselves. And as a result, whatever we do, we do because of grace if we do it freely. And as you've noted, and we noted in the past, it's a really horrendous teaching that we only get grace after we've done everything we can do, because that means nobody ever gets grace. It would be nonsense. And so that reading has to be rejected just out of hand. What the Book of Mormon is actually teaching is that it's because of this grace that we are able to freely do what we do. All right, so there is prevenient grace, and you say there is, however, another type of grace that works in us after having been freed to choose for ourselves by prevenient grace. In the second stage of grace, God grants operative grace to all to be saved if we choose to accept it. All persons may choose to accept the gracious offer of covenant relationship if they so desire. So what does the term operative grace mean? I've taken the term operative grace from Armenian theology. In Armenian theology, grace becomes operative when we freely accept it. And this is important to recognize. The term operative grace is not scriptural. It's not a terminology that Joseph Smith used. But what it means is, is that grace becomes operative in our lives after we freely choose to accept the grace that, is, that we are able to accept because God has made us free to do so without being moved by irresistible grace and being stuck in original sin. So that's what we mean by that. Right, makes sense. Okay, then we're going to move into the next section here, which is going kind of back to that discussion of the light of Christ and such. So it's called the grace of life and light. And you start out by saying, In June 1832, Joseph Smith received a revelation which inauspiciously heralded the development of a new expression of divine grace. The revelation adopted the concept of light from the Gospel of John to elucidate this new way of speaking of God's grace. And in Doctrine and Covenants, section 50, verse 24, it says, That which is of God is light, and he that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light, and that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. So you kind of hinted at this before, but like you said, in process thought, this being more in line with God's initial aim or listening more to the Spirit to align your desires with God's desires for you or his desires in general, I guess. This is what we're growing in and what we're not necessarily overcoming, but this is what we've come here to learn, or at least one of the things. What else do you interpret from that scripture? Well, once we've been redeemed, we then enter into a process of sanctification. And this is something that is scriptural. It's in Moroni 7. And the notion is, is that we begin to grow in the light of Christ and be made over in Christ's image from the moment that we freely accept the gracious relationship. Now, remember the term grace is not often used. It's hardly ever used in the book, actually. It uses the term mercy instead, which is more in line with its Hebrew background because the term grace really isn't. It's more of a term of mercy. But the bottom line is, is that the Book of Mormon really doesn't speak in terms that were common in the Protestant parlance of Methodism, as most people assume, which was the greatest influence on Joseph Smith. Instead, it talks in terms of the light of Christ and how it grows in us through a process of sanctification. And it, and even in the Book of Mormon, 
the notion is is that we continue to grow in the light until we are made over in God's image and and until we see as he sees, we know as he knows, and we're perfected as he's perfect. And so it's already there, I would say almost fully expressed in the Book of Mormon. In 1832, the string of revelations begins that really begins to focus on God's light. God's light is given to us as a grace. We don't earn it. But we are free to accept whatever level of light we're capable of receiving and are willing to receive. It's like the light of the sun, okay? There is all of this light, but we don't fully accept into our bodies all of the light of the sun. But the notion is, is that by opening ourselves to God, this grace that he has given to us of his glory, his power, his knowledge, his spirit, his intelligence, these are all synonyms that are used in, in connection with light. This glory begins to enter into us and grows. Now, we're not capable of fully accepting the glory or light that God offers us initially. We must grow in it from grace to grace, is the notion of the doctrine of covenants. And so we increase our capacity to receive the light of God over the course of our lives. And when we have fully grown, we become gods, and we share fully in the glory, the light, the power, and knowledge of God to the same extent that God has it. Everything that God knows, all power that God has, every glory in which he participates, we share fully with him. Not in a sense that he has more of it, he's sharing everything with us. But then we glorify God by receiving this and entering into relationship with him. And he is made greater. So we have this mutual glorifying taking place. And by accepting him and glorifying him, we make him greater because he grows in this light as well. And, and it's because of our love returned to him. And so in a sense, God is made greater because of the love and light that we return to him by worshiping him and recognizing his love and, pass, and spreading it around, to put it in common parlance. So I think the key concept here is that it's just like the sunlight that comes to us. It's just there when we're born. We don't pay for it. It's given to us as a gift, just as all life is. All life on earth is ultimately in debt to the light of the sun as its basis and origin. Without the light of the sun, so you know, we begin life with the energy that comes from the sun. Plants have a particular process of photosynthesis. The animals eat the grass and, and the leaves and so forth, and that becomes the energy of their lives. We eat the grains and the fruits and so forth that owe their energy to the light. We eat the meat of the animal, and all that energy then becomes us. It's therefore the light of the sun. By a metaphor or simile, it's the same with the light of God. He offers it to us, and we grow in it. And all life, all spiritual life and all physical life is due to God's light given to the world to be shed upon it in fullness so that we can accept as much as we're willing to accept. But the point is, we all have that level of light which we're willing to accept. There are a number of revelations that Joseph Smith received that developed this theology of growing the light of God. All right, well, before we jump into that, um, in the book, you differentiate grace as a process versus grace as a state of being. And so what's, I understand, like, the more traditional view is kind of a state of grace. And you've probably, you know, everyone's heard that term, like, there are states of grace or a state of grace or something like that. So what do you mean by process versus state? Yeah, so in Protestant thought, primarily, there's a sense of this also in various modes in Catholic or Orthodox thought. We enter, in, we accept 
Christ as our Savior, and, and now we're saved. We're in a state of being saved. We then have a state of being sanctified. And so it's it's kind of a thing, you accomplish it and it's static. You just, you know, it's accomplished all at once, and once you've got it, you can never lose it. LDS thought doesn't view it that way. LDS thought views growth in the light as a process that takes place over a lifetime. And we can reject the light after having received it, so we can grow in it, but we can also devolve from the growth that we have made. And so the light that is given to us as a sheer grace is not a state. It's a process over a lifetime and our openness to it in one moment, our closedness to it in another, and how we will grow in the light. The challenge is to be opened to the light of God, to open our hearts to receive the light of God, that we may grow in that light, as the scripture says, until the perfect day when we know as he knows or seen as he has seen and have shared all of his power and glory. Right, and you mentioned that the key to this model of grace is that every person is given, as a gift, that degree of light that they are willing to accept. This is kind of akin to the sense of justice that we talked about last time. Said the vision is the vision of that Joseph Smith received in section 76, for example, is an expression of this model of grace. There's another revelation received by Joseph Smith on December 27, 1832, which is kind of titled The Olive Leaf, and that recognized that this light is given as a sheer gift. It is Doctrine and Covenants 88, verses 32 and 33, it says, And they who remain shall also be quickened. Nevertheless, they shall return again to their own place to enjoy that degree of light which they are willing to receive, because they were not willing to enjoy that which they might have received. For what doth a profit a man if a gift is bestowed upon him, and he receiveth not the gift? Behold, he rejoices not in that which is given unto him, neither rejoices in him who is the giver of the gift. Yeah, elucidate on how that relates to this process, I guess. In the Gospel of John, it says that the light of Christ is given to all men, which means all humankind. And it is simply something that he gives to us as a part of our lives. And then it's it's up to us to choose how much of the light we're willing to accept. What we're really doing, the, the light represents our relationship with God and how close we are. So if we're growing in relationship with God, the light is growing within us and we're accepting God and, and accepting his will for us. If we're rejecting God, then, then we don't grow in the light. We increase in darkness over time. And the Doctrine and Covenants makes it very clear that this light is given as a sheer gift to be accepted or rejected as we choose. And so it is a grace. It's, it's a sheer grace because it's a, it's a simple gift. We do nothing to earn it. Now, I want to make something clear. The gift of light is given to us, and it's a matter of simply holding out our hands, if you will, to accept the gift when it's offered. But that doesn't mean that the light that accumulates in us is simply a result of God giving it to us. It's a matter of our willing over a lifetime to choose to reflect God in our lives and to reflect his love in our lives so that that light will abound within us and take up abode within us. The Doctrine and Covenants, and I want to point this out, this is important. Mormons are often accused of being a religion of works. But Mormonism is like Judaism. Islam, Protestantism, Catholicism, and Orthodox thought, in this sense, all of them believe that we will be judged according to our works and what we do. And the gift of grace that's given to us isn't earned in any sense, 
but reward is based upon what we do. However, it's important to recognize that what we do is enabled by the light of Christ. So if I recognize that there's a person in need, it's because I have been enlightened, I've been inspired to see the need. If I have energy to carry out to bless the life of a person, it's because I receive that energy as a gift. And so all of this is a gift in different ways. And life is filled with gifts all around us. The air that we breathe, the bodies that we have, the fact that I can move my arm when I choose to and I'm not paralyzed, the fact that my body functions, all of these are sheer gifts. I didn't, you know, I didn't make my body. I didn't choose it to be the way that it is in, in significant respects. It's true that we all choose to have the bodies that we have in important respects. I don't mean to suggest that, that our bodies are just a gift and they just do what they do. They reflect our lifestyles, what we eat, how much energy we expend, and so forth. But the basic abilities, I, it's like Christ said, you know, I, I can't add a centimeter to my stature. It's genetically given to me and it is what it is. So we have these gifts all around us and there is this dimension of grace in our lives and it's important that we open up to recognize all of the gifts that have been given to us because life itself is a gift. And so what it calls for is the sense of gratitude and in reflecting. Now when I say we're judged according to our works, what I mean is we will naturally receive, and this is the way the Doctrine and Covenants actually use it throughout, we will receive the natural result of what we do. If I bless the lives of others, then my life will be blessed in many different ways, and it will be the natural outcome of what I do for those people. If I share love with others, I'm going to, re I'm going to receive love in return. It's just natural. If I send out anger and pain to others, I'm going to receive back anger and pain. It's just the natural thing that occurs. And so the notion of judgment, again going back to Alma 41, where he talks about the law of restoration, the Doctrine and Covenants speaks in terms of a law that's irrevocably decreed that determines what returns to us, okay? So, in large part, what we do, the judgment by works, is simply the natural result of receiving what we send out and having, you know, what goes around come around and reaping what we sow. It is the natural law, karma, if you want to call it that. And so in the judgment, it's not a sense that God's sitting up there and weighing our deeds like you see in the Egyptian psychostasis, you know, where you've got a new beast and he's sitting there and you've got a, a balancing weight if one side is heavier than the other. If your good deeds are, are heavier than the bad deeds on the other side, then you go to heaven. If the bad deeds are heavier on that side, you go to hell. That's kind of a Protestant notion, actually. But that's not the notion of being rewarded for works and being judged by works in Mormon scripture. And it isn't anywhere in the Bible either, I may add. Okay, and so just building on this idea, you kind of say, okay, so we have this gift, and we're free to decide how we use this gift, which is the light or energy of life, or just, you know, having a life at all. And, but we just, you know, we always need to keep in mind we're not the sole source of that energy. God's concurring grace is a necessary condition to the exercise of that agency. But then you say, the model of grace that's based upon a, the gift of divine light is actually the foundation in LDS doctrine and thought on how we talk about deification or, you know, becoming like God. And there's a big emphasis on this in LDS thought. So you say, the person who accepts the light that God offers as a gift grows in that light until the perfect day, as it mentions in Doctrine and Covenants. And when you or he or she shares fully in the divine attributes, you 
grow in that light until the perfect day when the person shares fully in the divine attributes, which includes a complete comprehension of all things, at least according to the Doctrine and Covenants. So, you say, this vision revealed that when we share a fullness of light and glory, as I said we can do if we keep building to this perfect day or whenever we're growing so much, then it says, we are gods, even the sons of God, wherefore all things are theirs, it says in the Doctrine and Covenants. So, Godhood and LDS thought, means that we share with God all that God has and is. We are heirs of all things because we are his sons and daughters and all things are bequeathed unto us or, you know, we're heirs to it. So there's more to this scripture and stuff, but to skip ahead here, I guess, you say, however, we cannot ever become gods on our own or in our own right or by virtue of our uncreated ontological status. So again, we're not gods just because we are the same kind as what God is. Deification is not about self-reliance or becoming self-sufficient. It is about attributes that arise when divine persons share their lives so completely that what one knows, all know, and what one does, all do. What one wills, all will. First, let's explain two things. So, at least as it explains it in the Doctrine and Covenants, this is the LDS view of deification. It's a really high view of it. Well, let's just do this. I guess the best way to explain it will be to kind of juxtapose it with what the Orthodox Church believes about deification. So there's a lot of similarities and differences between the two. So will you kind of go over that and then kind of clarify? I don't know. You're you're saying this to clarify a lot of kind of folklore that is in LDS thought about becoming like God. And you mentioned specifically, like, you know, going off and being independent. And you're saying it's the opposite of that. It's becoming more unified. Anyway, sorry, that's like five questions. The notion is a lot of LDS people think of exaltation as, I think we've talked about this before. It's on the model of a child growing up and leaving home. So what you do, you've been in a home, you've learned from your parents, and then you fly off to some planet God hasn't quite gotten to yet, which is like leaving to go to college and live on your own and create your own family. And so you go there and you go fly off there with your wives and, and whatever, and then you begin to copulate endlessly until you know, you've created a whole bunch of children and you have your own world. Apart from the fact that that's nonsense on its face, it just isn't what's taught in the LDS scripture. The LDS scriptures, in fact, make it the very opposite of that. In fact, the sin of Adam and Eve was that they wanted to become gods without involving God. <laughs> and that is a sin because it's the opposite of what the case is. When we become fully divine, it's because we've grown in unity to share everything with God, his knowledge and power, and to know as he knows and be seen as he's seen and so forth. The bottom line is is that, that when we talk of, of exaltation in terms of self-sufficient and on this model, it is very misleading, and it's not what it's about at all. The other thing that you've asked about is the similarity to orthodox thought. Orthodox theology makes a very strict distinction between the created and the uncreated, and only God is uncreated. But it talks about deification very often, which is kind of a strange thing because in Orthodox thought, they adopt the via negativa. We can't even say what God is. We can also say what he's not. God is so completely different than we are. We can't even say anything about him. But what they mean by deification is that we participate in the energies of God. And the analogy they use, so if you take a spoon and you put it in a fire, it will participate in the heat of the fire because it will be warmed by the fire. So it participates in the nature of the fire, which is to be warm. 
In a similar way or in a logical way, we participate in the divinity of God because through his energies, and that's a technical term, but by energies what I think they mean is by the force of his power, knowledge, and glory, we participate in the glory of God because we begin to share in some of what it means to be God. God is loving, and, and to a certain degree, we can be loving. God has all knowledge, and to a certain degree, we can have knowledge. But it's a degree that is commensurate with being created rather than uncreated. So in Orthodox thought, we can never really become fully what God is. That very idea is nonsensical for Orthodox thought. The point is, however, in Mormon thought, we can literally become everything that God is and participate fully in what he is. I want to point something out, however. It's never the case. I mean, the Doctrine and Covenants talks about growing in the light until the perfect day. But the fact is that that perfect day, a part of what it means to be perfect is to continue to grow in the light dynamically. And so exaltation is a dynamic term where we continue growing for eternity. It's called eternal progression. And so there's never a point that we reach where there's not more growth possible. We can always grow. There's, it's like the greatest possible integer. No matter what, how large the possible integer is that you're thinking of, there's always one that's greater and more. And that's the way God is. God's perfection is more like the fact that there's no greatest possible integer, but it goes on forever, than like thinking of it as the best score you can get in golf, which is, you know, on an 18-course golf course, it's 18. Well, that covers pretty well that section. The next two we can go over pretty quickly. In fact, this next one, let me just read something, and then I guess if you want to say anything, that's fine, but I don't think we need to say much more than what is quoted here. So you talk about ritual expression of atonement. And so this is kind of more about the ordinances and expressions that we do in worship that mirror or kind of our metaphor for the atonement. And you say, I will not discuss a theology of ordinances at great length here. However, the way in which these ordinances reflect, symbolize, and affect union with Christ is not difficult to see. In baptism, we are buried with Christ in his death. When we arise from the water, we are resurrected with him. In doing so, we die to the things of the flesh and live in the Spirit in Christ. We take the sacrament to represent taking Christ's life into us. The bread we eat represents taking his body into us, that we may be his body on earth. The wine or the water, as LDS drink, represents taking his life's blood into us to live in us. Through anointing, this is referring to some things in the temple, we are made messiahs or anointed ones and honored with Christ. When we are clothed in robes of righteousness, we are clothed in Christ and his priesthood. When we join in a prayer circle, we are joined as one body in Christ. Virtually all the ordinances in LDS orthopraxis are means of symbolizing and affecting the union with Christ that is accomplished through atonement. And so, before we move on here, the I don't know, everything that we do as far as ordinances go in the LDS church, like you said here, is to show us that because of this atonement and becoming one with Christ, that's what it's all about, basically. We speak of being deified, but we ought to actually speak in terms of being Christified. We're made over in Christ's image. And these ordinances are so pregnant with meaning. They're so fantastically full in pointing beyond themselves and in participating in the very experience of Christ to be as Christ is. You don't have to be a, a brilliant intellect in order for these ordinances to have effect or for them to be a participatory practice in Christ. And so ordinances are really the language of the heart to express how we reflect the, the divinity of Christ in our lives. Great summarization. All right, so 
This next section is kind of more like an intro to the next chapter, but we'll go into a little bit. So it's transferring the pain of our sins to Christ. So before I start here, next chapter is where we're going to go into what I've been talking about for a few episodes here is we're going to go into different theories of atonement or just ideas on what exactly is the atonement, how it works and why it works and why Christ has to suffer at all and and so forth. But before we get into that, this little intro just mentions a few things to set us up for an LDS view of atonement. So, say Christ shares in our sufferings in the sense that the pain of our sinfulness and alienation is transferred to him. The dimension of atonement is ritually portrayed for Christians in the sacrificial system of the Law of Moses that played a central role in the New Testament expression of the meaning of Christ's suffering and death. So, yeah, I don't know, just go into that a bit. In the sacrificial system, the life of the animal, it literally is because they believe that the life was in the blood, and when the blood is spilt, the life of the animal is released, if you will, and therefore it becomes, in releasing the blood, it is giving life to God. And so the notion was this kind of exchange of this life for that life. More importantly, on the Day of Atonement, the priest would lay his hands upon a goat, one goat. There were actually two goats in the process, but one goat he would lay his hands upon, and that would they would place all of the sins of Israel upon that goat, and then that goat would be driven from the camp of Israel. So that they were literally driving out their sins by transferring them to a goat. Obviously, the goat didn't suffer any pain. But when I talk about the Law of Moses prefiguring the Atonement, it is this transfer of life and experience from one to another. Uh, You also mentioned experiencing our suffering because God is omniscient will not suffice to explain the Atonement because Christ suffers the pain instead of us. Yeah, not not only that, but keep in mind that the, the Father is also omniscient. He participates directly in our experience as any omniscient being would. So God experiences all of our experiences from a third-hand perspective as a result of the fact that he's, he's, just, he's omniscient, which means he knows all that is. So he participates with us in, in knowing what we're experiencing, but it doesn't mean that he suffers what we suffer. I've given this analogy before when we were discussing book one, but if I'm in a bank and somebody comes in and points a gun at me, I experience fear. And God knows that I experience fear, but that doesn't mean that God is afraid. He's not going to be shot, and he's not afraid for his life. And so experiencing something third-hand, is, it lacks the first-hand kind of experience involved. There's this key scripture, however, in the Doctrine and Covenants, and what it says is that we suffer the pains if we don't repent, but if we do repent, Christ suffers those pains instead. Now, this is extremely important to set up the notion of atonement that I'm going to be discussing a new theory of atonement. It's the only one I believe actually answers the kind of questions that need to be answered in a theory of atonement. But the bottom line is that what it is saying is that our pain is transferred to Christ and he suffers the pain of our sins rather than us. And so Christ is suffering innocently, but we're not suffering because he's taken on the experience of pain that arises from our sins. That doesn't mean Christ became sinful. I want to make clear there's nothing in the scriptures that ever suggests, you know, I mean, Paul says that Christ became sin that we might be made righteous, but what he means by, by sin in that context is within the Jewish context. He, he became the bearer of the pain of our sins as a result of the fact that we enter into a relationship with him and he takes the pain of our experience into him. But because he's taken the pain of our past into him, we don't experience the pain that we would experience if we hadn't repented. 
So if we repent, he takes the pain. If we don't repent, we take the pain. That's how DNC 19 sets it up. And then you say the LDS scripture is clear, that Christ suffers excruciating pain as a result of our sins, so that we don't have to suffer what we would have otherwise had to suffer if he had not, just like you said. And you say, moreover, the focus of this expiatory suffering is not limited to the cross, but begins in Gethsemane and is completed in his death on the cross. And then just this last thing, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. So it says, the atonement is affected by an indwelling unity of shared life. The pain for sins of the world are transferred to Christ because he is one with us. Atonement results in release from pain and sin for us. It results in pain and suffering for Christ. Atonement results in salvation from sin and begins the process of sanctification in which we become partakers of the divine nature because God's very life is shared with us. And so this sets up what I will call the interpersonal model or the compassion theory of atonement that we'll discuss next time. Okay, and yeah, we'll do that and we'll get into that then. So that's the end. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com. 